For 20 years, the Jim Hare family took an annual one-week family vacation to Pentwater, Michigan, where my five brothers and sisters, along with my parents, stayed at the McVoy Cottage on Lake Michigan. And while our children didn't have the opportunity you know, to travel across the United States and visit all the national parks and historic sites on their vacations, they did have the great opportunity uh, in the incredible adventure of spending a week with their cousins, engaging in every imaginable kind of mischief and fun while their parents largely ignored them and read books on the beach. But th- those 20 one-week adventures shaped our lives. They gave rise to a special vocabulary Uh, Over 200 token phrases and sayings have found their way into the language of our family get-togethers. They provided subject material for school assignments, uh, essays, illustrations, term papers. They've created a museum of memories and stories that we treasure, we tell, we retell, and laugh at today. We even have T-shirts and sweatshirts uh, customized every year for the sake of memory. Those family vacations were a life changing adventure that we experience together. Today, we're continuing our church family's second 40-day adventure following the radical Jesus. We're entering a life-changing season of growth together that coincides with the historic observation of Lent and will culminate in a celebration on Easter Sunday. Our expectations for 40 days are rooted in three cornerstone prayers. The first prayer for ourselves, that we will experience uh, Jesus in more personal and powerful ways. Secondly, for our friends, that the Holy Spirit would touch our five unchurched friends. And thirdly, for our church family and the communities in which we live, that God's kingdom, his love, and his mercy and power would break through and touch our whole church family and then the communities in which we live. Our 40-day adventure is accompanied by a study through the entire Gospel of Mark, where we are reading two chapters a week in preparation for our Sunday get-togethers. I'm encouraging you to read the Gospel two weeks, uh, two chapters per week at a time with fresh eyes, a fresh desire to see the Gospels brand new, uh, maybe even rereading them several times as we soak in prayer, asking Jesus to reveal himself freshly. And then lastly, we've encouraged all of our 40-day adventures to be undergirded with some sort of fasting. My hope is that the Holy Spirit is already at work, beginning to speak to us and change us. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we honor you, your presence here today. You are good. Your mercy endures forever. You're the king. Uh, You're the father, you're the provider, you're the shepherd, you're the leader, you're the encourager, you're the healer. For who you are and all that you do, we say thank you. And in this time we set aside now, Lord, we we pray that your Holy Spirit would put power on your word and, and our community to change our lives. And not just here, Lord, but right next door where our, our kids are learning and worshiping and growing and serving as well. We welcome you here. In your name, amen. Mark's gospel is one of three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, because they see the same thing. The word synoptic means literally to view together. It's likely written by Mark, who is a close associate of the apostle Peter, from whom he would have received his information 
firsthand. It's the earliest gospel, but still written a full 35 years after the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. That's a long time. Now, Mark's gospel became the source material for both Matthew and Luke. In fact, 90% of Mark reappears in Matthew. 50% of Mark reappears in Luke. Each of the gospel writers had a different target audience, and so the sayings and deeds of Jesus that were originally transmitted orally and by tradition, each of the authors, conditioned by their perspective and goals, had a slightly different uh, viewpoint in collecting and organizing their material. For instance, imagine that there were an explosion at the chem lab in Olin Hall and the Bradley University campus. If if you were to read a report by a chemistry student, you'd probably hear of chemicals and reaction and reagents and stupid mistakes by fellow students. An art major in an adjacent lab might report colors and sounds and textures and form. And still, an engineering student may have reflected on the temperature, the forcefulness of the explosion, the damage to the structure. Now, all three are telling the truth from their unique perspective. And so it is with the four gospel writers about the life of Christ. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all write with a fundamentally deep conviction that Jesus is alive when they are writing. So when we read Mark, we're not coming to a dead figure locked in the past history, you know, Jesus buried in a crypt somewhere. He's alive. He is the risen Lord. He is ruling and reigning on the throne in heaven. He is present in all of us as his followers through the person of the Holy Spirit. And he's still doing what Mark is recording. He's revealing himself. He's drawing men and women and children to God the Father. He's forgiving sin. He's healing the sick. He's releasing the demonized, meeting needs, answering prayers, providing hope, instructing for daily life. Jesus is still doing the stuff. You know, people who are alive are capable of doing new things and saying new things. And so is Jesus. So. Two of the most fundamental questions that everyone must answer when approaching the Gospels are these. Is Jesus dead or is Jesus alive? And if Jesus is alive, then everything changes. Everything changes. Now, Mark's Gospel can be divided into two sections. This is helpful for those of you who are more intuitive, big picture people. You want to see where we're headed. Chapters 1 to 8 deal with the power of Jesus. They reveal Jesus as the warrior king, the son of David, who's bringing the kingdom of God, his rule and reign, into the earth. The language is forceful, it's militant, the pace is quick and sudden, and it's very rapid. You almost feel out of breath when you get done with the first chapter. Chapters 9 to 16 deal with the passion of Jesus. 1 to 8, the power of Jesus. One to, uh, 9 to 16, the passion of Jesus. They reveal Jesus as the suffering Son of Man who's intentionally going to Jerusalem to die and be raised from the dead. So think of Mark as a, as a huge mountain. 
Chapters 1 to 8, we're going up the mountain. The power of Jesus, Jesus the warrior king. It peaks in chapter 8 at verse 31, and then we begin a descent in chapters 9 to 16, the suffering Jesus who's going into the valley to die. Power, passion, warrior king, suffering servant. Now, Mark's gospel opens in chapter 1 with this simple declaration. This is the good news or gospel about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. It began just as the prophet Isaiah had written. Gospel means good news. It's both an historical event, news, with an interpretation. It's good. Jesus is the Lord's proper name, and while it would have been common to many other people in the first century, it was specifically given to him by an angel to his father, Joseph. The Messiah is uh, actually a, a term that comes from the Greek language, the word Christ, which means anointed. It's technically a royal title, uh, it, and it, it, it was a title in the Roman world, but it became a proper name. So the Christ became Christ. And the title immediately connects Jesus to David, the ideal king of Israel, who was anointed by the prophet Samuel with oil and was promised unconditionally by God that he would have a, a, an heir on the throne ruling over God's people forever. So Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And then Mark directly grounds the gospel in the Old Testament prophets, and he quotes from the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Malachi. I like what theologian Helmut Thielicke once stated. The Old Testament is the vestibule through which we enter the new. If we don't come into the New Testament in general and the life of Christ in particular through the doorway of the Old Testament, we are vulnerable to misunderstanding at best or uh, false teaching and heresy at worst. So the prophet Isaiah in the 40th through the 66th chapter, from which portion Mark is quoting, describes the new exodus of God's people when, once again, at the end of this present evil age, in an event that Isaiah refers to as the day of the Lord, God himself will intervene in human history and deliver his people and restore them to the promised land. Isaiah, and Mark quoting Isaiah, is indicating that now is the time that God is going to intervene and usher in a time of peace and prosperity, and blessing. And then, by citing the prophet Malachi in the third chapter, Mark identifies John the baptizer as the messenger who appears in the spirit and power of Elijah, announcing the final day of the Lord. And so Mark is telling us in verse 2, like immediately as we begin to read, that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, promised by God, that in fulfillment to everything that God had promised, both through the kings, Daniel or or David and, and Solomon and the prophets. He is the one that Israel's been waiting for for a thousand years to bring the day of the Lord. 
Now, when you and I log on to Netflix or we stop by and visit the Red Box, you know, we begin to search for a DVD to put in our queue. Uh, we read those little two and three sentence summaries of the plot of the movie, don't we? We think, well, is that one that grabs my interest? The summary shares the plot of the movie in a brief paragraph. Well, in a similar way, Mark, in chapters, uh, chapter 1, verses 9 to 15, shows how Jesus repeats the entire history of Israel in a concise form. He's sharing the whole of Israel's history in a brief paragraph through these next acts of Christ. As Israel went through the waters of the Red Sea, so Jesus goes through the waters of baptism. As Israel became God's son from in the exodus from uh, of Egypt, so Jesus is now God's son. And God's audible voice quoted two Old Testament scriptures, Psalm 2-7, Isaiah 42-1, and confirmed Jesus' identity and the pleasure that he was bringing to God the Father. As Israel experienced the glory of God filling the tabernacle, so Jesus now experiences God's glory when he's filled with the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. And as Israel wandered 40 years in the wilderness, now Jesus is tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. He is recapitulating the entire history of God's people in these few verses. And then in verses 14 to 15, Mark says this powerful announcement. Jesus went into Galilee where he preached God's good news. The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. So Jesus was announcing that the long-awaited-for time that was prophesied by all of the Old Testament prophets that was looked forward to by the kings uh, David and, and Solomon is now here. Literally, he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand or it's near. The good news or the gospel that Mark is describing is that the kingdom of God is here. Jesus is the warrior king. He is David's Messiah who is bringing in his words and his works God's kingship, his rule, his reign to the earth once again. God is stepping into history as he did in the original Exodus, freeing his people from slavery in Egypt. God is now stepping into history once again, decisively, finally, firmly. And he's, he's intervening. His, he's, he's beginning to uh, bring uh, his kingdom rule to bear on a broken, sinful creation. God's good creation that's gone bad in the fall and corrupt under the kingdom of darkness is now being restored. And it's not a military battle, unlike many people had expected. It's not a struggle with Roman oppression, but against the devil and his demons in the lives of men, women, and children. And Jesus is asserting his rule over a rebellious planet and a counter kingdom of darkness ruled by the devil and his demons. Jesus is now going to show us over the next 16 chapters how he has authority over sin and sickness and disease and lack and oppression and poverty and famine and injustice and nature and weather and even death itself. And so Mark is setting us up to see what does it look like 
when God's kingdom rules. Now, this is the indicative. I know that's a big word, but it indicates what God has done. The kingdom has arrived. It is here. It's at hand. God has stepped into history to deliver his people in the final exodus in a time uh, he desires to bring shalom. That's the rich Old Testament word that the prophets used. Shalom referred to a time of peace and prosperity and blessing and rest in the presence of God. And then Jesus issues the imperative. As a result of the indicative indicating what God has done, Jesus issues the imperative. That is what is necessary, what it is that we must do. And he says, repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. That's the indicative. The imperative, what we must do, is repent and believe the gospel. Now, repent in the Bible simply means that we stop, we reevaluate everything about life, and then we turn from our sinful and selfish ways, and we commit to a new way of doing life. It may or may not have anything to do with, with an overwhelming sense of grief or emotion, not necessarily tied together. It just means that we reevaluate everything and we surrender our ways to change the way we live. And then to believe the gospel doesn't mean that we mentally agree with the facts of something, but rather that we trust in and we rely in, we, we throw our lives into fully and completely. And through the balance of Mark, we're now going to see this indicative imperative construct. In the vineyard history, we have valued living with this approach in mind. It's, it's our way of following Jesus. It goes like this. Because God has done blank, therefore we will do blank. Because God has done indicative, therefore we will do blank imperative. As opposed to the other way around. If we do blank, then God will do blank. We've often said that we want to do what we see the Father doing. We want to follow the Father's initiative. Because God has done, therefore we will respond. And so this, uh, it, it's, a, it's a way of like thinking about life in the kingdom, a way about doing life as a disciple. We want to see what God initiates and then follow. So this kind of construct will often be present uh, as we read through uh, the Gospel of Mark. And so periodically, through our 40-day adventure, and maybe even in, in our messages, it, uh, I find it, it may be helpful to do an indicative imperative exam. I might call it an I-I exam. Okay, I, I, I. For instance, right here, at this portion in verses 14 and 15, I might, in my I.I. exam, say, is there anything in my life that's not currently under the rule and reign of Jesus? The kingdom is here. Is there part of my life that's not under the rule? Or something more directly, is there something in my life from which I need to turn or repent? Because the kingdom is here, therefore, is there something I need to do? An I.I. exam. Now, verse 15 concludes Mark's sweeping introduction to the next 16 chapters. And for the balance of Mark's gospel, he's going to answer the question uh, that's posed in verse 15. Basically, what does it mean for God's kingdom to be at hand? 
The introduction concludes, and now we're off to the races. But before we do that, I just want to say one other thing about the baptism of Jesus. Um, I love how when Jesus came to be baptized, he stood at the riverbank, identifying with all the other sinners who came. It shows me the heart of Jesus. He doesn't stand against the sinners in judgment, but he stands with them in grace. He stands with the prostitute and the tax collector and the soldier and the adulterer and the angry and the addicted and the divorced and the greedy and the sick and the poor and the broken and the hopeless. He stands there identifying with them all. He stands with Big Al Zuccarini and the girls who work at his world-famous nightclub. He works and stands side by side with uh, the drug addicts and the dealers and the gangbangers and the crack house uh, dwellers in the 61605 zip code in our town. He stands with the up-and-outers who uh, are just as broken, although it's hidden behind a veneer of nice white smiles and really nice cars and big houses. Jesus stands with all of them and invites them into his kingdom. And we're going to see over and over as we read the Gospel of Mark that all kinds of sinful, broken, everyday, ordinary people who were alienated from God and outside of his love were attracted to Jesus and actually liked hanging around him. And I think, like, over the last 2,000 years, something's wrong with the church because those kind of people don't like the church at all. We have to figure it out. Why is that? Why isn't the church attractive the way Jesus was attractive? Because we're supposed to continue what he started, right? And so I'm just, I'm just captured again. Like, why was he so magnetic? And why is the church so repulsive? I think we have something to learn from the radical Jesus in the next 40 days. And so my II exam at this point is, uh, what's my attitude towards those who are outside the church, towards my five friends? And do I need the Holy Spirit's help in identifying more fully with Jesus who loved the sinner? I know that it was the God-fearing religious leaders who found Jesus the most offensive, and I don't want to be in that camp. I know that following the radical Jesus is going to con- is really going to challenge many of our conventional religious convictions. So just get ready. Verses 14 to 20, uh, Jesus called his very first followers, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, with that simple invitation, come and follow me. Now, to follow Jesus, in my opinion, is perhaps the clearest and simplest way of describing what it means to actually be a Christian. Uh, It conveys action, not just a doctrinal set of truths or moral imperatives that we try to live by. It, it, It means we're to go where Jesus, our warrior king, is actually leading us. We're going to follow him, and we're going to submit to his agenda for our lives, our previously selfish and self-centered lives, that is, before we turned. And then he lays out his purpose. He says, I will make you fishers of men. I'm going to show you how to fish for people. So to follow Jesus is is to experience a radical and beautiful change and being made into the person that Jesus wants to make us. Follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. Now, we can relax because did you notice in the text, it's Jesus that does the changing. I will make you. 
Christianity is not a self-improvement program where we pump ourselves up on self-discipline and steroids to become a nice person. Christianity, I mean, that, that is, you know, it's, it, you should be nice, but that's not why Jesus came. So we can be nice people. You know, no. We're going to find that over the next uh, eight weeks together. We are to be shaped by Jesus into the followers that he desires. How does that happen? Well, when we hang around him, when we, we do what he does, we, we live in community together, we experience his power at work in our lives, we read his word, we pray, we commune, we change values and, and priorities, we give up stuff and turn and follow stuff, and we just experience his, his love and his mercy, his touch, his power through the trials and and difficult circumstances of our life. And in the midst of all that, he shapes us. He makes us. And you know what he makes us? Fishers of men. People. People are the object of his love and affection. That's what it's all about. It's not about church programs, church building, religious activities. It's not even about church per se. It's about reaching people. To the end that everything we do gets in the way of reaching people, then we're going to jettison it. That's That's the message of Jesus. And I, I love how he calls people right out of their common, everyday, ordinary life. Did you notice that? His first followers were ordinary, blue-collar tradesmen. They, they were not scholars. They were not educated. They were not theologians. They were uh, not influential people. Probably not even the kind of people that you and I would select if we were given a list. But the kind of people that Jesus uses to reach other people are everyday, ordinary, getting up, going to work and school kind of people like you and me. Uh, the kind of people that have warts and bruises and rap sheets and a history of bad choices and poor decisions and failures. And if you feel like you identify with one of those, then guess what? Welcome to the vineyard. We are those people. We are at the first rung of the ladder, the kind of people that identified closely as Jesus's first followers. We're the kind of people that are just comfortable at the marketplace, in the office, in the factory, in the apartment complex, at the local restaurant, the local bar, the movie theater, at Walmart or Menards. We're just Menards, Walmart kind of people. They're the kind of people who follow the radical Jesus. Verses 21 to 28, Jesus now makes his headquarters in Capernaum. It's a seaside town in Galilee, And he visited the synagogue, went to church every week to teach. And immediately a demon, uh, an unclean, literally an unclean spirit, manifested in anger and violence. The demon says, have you come to destroy us? Now the us could refer to the demons inside the man, the us in the man, or the collective host of demons uh, that exist in the fallen world. But either way, The demon, unlike the religious people, understood exactly and correctly that Jesus, the warrior king, had come to wage war against the devil and his demons. They knew clearly the scriptural agenda for the last thousand years was coming to pass. And Jesus had come to liberate anyone who was oppressed by the devil into the freedom of God's kingdom, a very real, though unseen, enemy. And so when Jesus and his kingdom comes, guess what? Things happen. With a simple, authoritative command, the word is literally, be muzzled, come out of him. 
muzzle as you would a rabid dog. Jesus says, come out of him with that simple authoritative command. The demon left the man. The audience was like, whoa. That's the literal translation of amazed. They had been to church before, but they'd never seen a church service like that. Now, friends, all around us are people who are bound in sin and evil. Just like that man that sat in church every week, looked like a normal everyday person. The kingdom that we're inviting people into, that Jesus invites people into, is not just this wispy, spiritual, cosmic, you know, you have a house in heaven when you die. It is all of that, but it's a very real, concrete freedom that they can enter now. It's a coming out from under the grip of the devil, his control and influence in their life, and being propelled into the wholeness, the shalom of God's order, his rule and his reign, peace and joy and freedom from fear and anxiety, freedom from insomnia and a suffocating grip of, of worry and oppression and addiction and all the other things that are present in the kingdom of darkness. Right now, in space and time, Jesus wants to bring relief. And this may include freedom from demons, particularly if people have suffered uh, as a result of the trauma, a, a trauma or abuse or occult involvement or addictions. My testimony is the same. I've seen Jesus deliver me from demons. And they didn't all just disappear into the two-thirds undeveloped world. Trust me, they're still right here in America. Verses 29 to 34. So in the kingdom first advances in the synagogue and then in a common house with the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. Now, it's amazing that Jesus didn't just do spiritual things in a church or religious setting. You know, some of us have an idea that he prayed and read the scriptures and gave theological lectures and blessed people in church. He did all of that, but it was way larger. Uh, Wherever he went, there went the kingdom. Wherever he went, the kingdom or the rule of God over evil uh, came crashing in. I doubt that he'd gone to Peter's house to heal his mother-in-law. My my personal conviction is that he, he had gone there in hoping for a Sabbath meal. But between his hunger and dinner was a sick woman, the cook. And so in the normal course of everyday ordinary life, they called Jesus and he went in and he brought his healing power. Jesus was naturally supernatural wherever he went. He lived an outward focused life everywhere he was, everywhere he went. It was not just in the church or in the synagogue or in the temple. Everywhere he went was uh, was uh, a game on for the kingdom of God. And I love how God uses uh, the natural network of family relationships. Jesus had called Peter and Andrew as his first disciples. He'd launched his ministry in their hometown. He taught all of their friends in the church of their upbringing, the synagogue. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. No doubt it affected the father-in-law. Uh, and so the whole family network and relationships are now being touched. And this is often the way the kingdom works. Jesus minds networks of relationships. He looks for people of influence and peace, and he reaches them, and then they reach their network. Families, neighborhoods, at work, in the office, and other spheres of life. 
He extends the kingdom where those networks of relationship people are. The gospel spreads this way. Then I love Mark's sweeping summary in verse 32. That evening after sunset, many sick and demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus. The whole town gathered at the door to watch. And so Jesus healed many people who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons. But because the demons knew who he was, he didn't allow them to speak. So in a very short period of time, Jesus' fame is spreading rapidly. People, People's lives were being turned upside down. Hopeless situations were being reversed. And we see these sweeping summary statements by Mark scattered throughout his gospel. They're like painting a huge mural. And, and, and because the, the work of ministry of Jesus was so large, it is impossible to grasp. But what I also love is that it leaves a lot to the imagination of the readers. We can take our fine brush and paint in the little pictures. And that's by God's design through the Holy Spirit. But I also think it's interesting that these three verses immediately follow the account of the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. Because in some ways, I think Mark wants to make the dramatic point that while at the outset, Jesus frequently ministered to large crowds and masses of people, too large to number, he was always willing to be inconvenienced and minister to an individual. No person went beyond him being reached. He was always willing to be inconvenienced, to, to minister to, to individual hurting people. No fever was too small. No situation was too insignificant. Jesus' life, always outward focused. No time more sacred than another. Not some sacred spaces, some secular spaces. Uh, he was never more holy one place than he was another. Uh, public and private, uh, crowds and individuals. He was consistently, thoroughly outward focused, bringing the kingdom of God. And now at this point, some of you are getting rather nervous because you see we have a lot of space to go between now and the end of chapter 2. And you're thinking he's already been going for 25 minutes. I've just got a few more points. And trusting the Holy Spirit to unpack the balance of the gospel to you. Verse 35, Mark 1. Before daybreak the next morning, Jesus got up and went out to an isolated place to pray. In the middle of this dynamic movement, militaristic power language is this beautiful phrase in Mark 135. After an exhausting day of kingdom ministry, now in a crowded house where Jesus and his apostles were the guests, no doubt there was very little room for privacy. And so it was very early in the morning. Mark reads, or Matthew reads, arising a great while before dawn, Jesus sought a place of solitude to connect with God his Father in prayer. I've told you before that prayer is simply talking to and listening to God. It, it, it cultivates intimacy, but it also expresses dependency. Father, I can't sustain this life, my calling, without your help, your grace, your strength and resources. So Jesus withdrew. And so, too, we, in order to advance, we must withdraw. If we're going to follow the radical Jesus, then we must follow him into regular times of connecting with God, our Father. In that moment in the morning, no, no doubt Jesus prayed. He likely recited scripture. You're going to notice in the, in the weeks to come, Jesus quoted scripture like all the time. He likely knew the entire Torah by memory by, the age, by age 14. He perhaps sang songs from the Psalter. 
And in these rich moments, he, he was replenished in his relationship from the father, in the relationship with the father. And so like Jesus, I think we need times of silence from the noise of everyday ordinary life. And so my eye, eye exam at this point would be, how do I need to reform my priorities and rework my schedule? to follow the radical Jesus into connecting with the Father? Do I need to turn off the TV, power down the phone, turn off the computer and the games? If we want to do what Jesus did, then we must do all that Jesus did. You see, a lot of us, you know, we want to cast out demons and lead others to Christ with great power. We want to heal the sick, but we've been slow to fully follow Jesus while rising a great while before daybreak to connect with God our Father. If we want to do all that Jesus did, then we must do all that Jesus did. And I think this verse stands as a compelling illustration. Um, Chapter 1, verses 40 to 45, from these moments of Close, close chronology, uh, a jam-packed, literally, one or two days. Now the scene shifts to an unknown time and place somewhere in, in Jesus' itinerant ministry in Galilee. And in, he was approached by a leper who said, Lord, if you're willing, you can heal me and make me clean. He knew that Jesus was able, but now he questioned his willingness. Lepers were isolated, cut off from community, plagued by shame, suffered no known cure. But verse 41, powerful statement, Mark says, Jesus moved with compassion, reached out and touched him. I am willing, be healed. Jesus's compassionate answer should forever settle our lingering questions about his willingness to heal. You know, so often we doubt, don't we? We doubt that Jesus is willing. We have very little trust. We kind of assume that it must not be my time we, we assume that maybe what we have is our punishment. But Jesus said, I am willing. And he healed leprosy from which there was no known cure. And so when we ask, can Jesus really heal me? Can he really break my addiction? Can he free me from cigarettes or porn or alcohol or habitual sin? Can he really provide the finances that we need? Can he overcome my demons? Can he reach my loved ones? One leper stands on the center of the stage of life in Galilee and says, yes, Jesus is willing. Just a couple more comments in conclusion. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, in the midst of a, a very demanding ministry campaign, Jesus returned home to Capernaum. Now in his house, the crowd gathered. Four men carrying a paralyzed friend tore open the roof the thatch, the timber, and the mud to lower their paralyzed friend in front of Jesus to be healed. Jesus saw their faith and made a declaration, my child, your sins are forgiven. And at that moment, predictably, the religious leaders are amazed. They are shocked, PO'd, we might say. All good Jews knew that forgiveness was granted through the priests at the temple service and the sacrificial system only. The temple was the focal point of all of Judaism. And, and it's where God met with his people. But here, Jesus was abolishing the temple and the implications were enormous. Jesus did now what only God could do at the temple. The priesthood, the sacrificial system, the temple, that was all central to the, uh, the religious system of the day. And Jesus was in that one fell swoop overturning the whole apple cart. 
The temple was where God's presence was manifested among God's people. It's where he drew to people. And Jesus was now saying, God's presence and God's mercy and forgiveness reside in me, where I am. There's no longer a sacred place. There's no longer a a sacred uh, uh, ministry position. And then to prove the point, he heals the man. Friends, I just want to tell you that Jesus, the revolutionary, challenges everything. And he's going to continue to do that in our lives as well. And when, in particular, in this case, uh, forgiveness is not just some abstract doctrine, but it's concrete reality. When he forgave the man, at that moment, the kingdom of God broke in and it released his healing power. Last thing I want to share in, in verses 13 to 17 in the call of Levi. Jesus looks at Levi, the tax collector, and says, follow me and be my disciple. Now, most of us, if we've read the Bible at all, know that tax collectors were among the most despised people, hated for their traitorous collaboration with Rome and their dishonesty. But Jesus called Matthew to be one of his inside twelve. And then that night, Matthew invited Jesus into his house, into a party with other tax collectors and notorious sinners. And that display of hospitality and welcome and relationship deeply offended the religious leaders. For them, community in God's kingdom was to be exclusive. A holy God demands holy people who are not to associate with sinners, the people whom God would judge. But Jesus stood there and said, community is inclusive. When the kingdom comes, all will be welcomed because mercy triumphs over judgment. And so in the vineyard, if we have a banner cry, it's come as you are, you will be loved. One of our deeply held values is that we want to offer non-judgmental acceptance to all people everywhere, regardless of their place and station in life. I would that people of every stripe be welcome at the vineyard. People that are outside of our socioeconomic demographic, people not like us. In fact, people quite different from us, people who are far from God or lots of different places on their journey, or maybe who don't even believe in God or people who believe other things about God. Uh, Jesus wants us to reach out beyond our circle of comfort and security and peace and safety and include them and make room for them to build bridges of relationship with them so that we may at some point cross and share the good news of the kingdom with them where they can experience uh, the kingdom of God coming into their life before they even understand what has happened. That's the kind of atmosphere we want here. And and believe me, I'm like you. I always want to naturally gravitate towards people like me. But Jesus is going to continually push us in the other direction to say, all are welcome. The, the, The table is large. The banquet is ready. Come and have a seat at the table. Well, friends, we're going to be stretched to the max when we follow the radical Jesus. But a life changing season of growth together is what I think you signed up for. Lord, we're just grateful that. Wow. When we take the lenses of familiarity off, we look at your life. There's so many powerful and beautiful things about you, Jesus. I pray that we could all grow, Lord, in the way that you've ordained for each of us into the people you want to make us to be. But we can relax and trust you because you do the changing. So, Lord, put power on on our time together through your Holy Spirit. 
And now as we offer our lives to you, Lord, in the offering and in worship, we pray that you would take them for what they are, tokens that we, we do believe. We, 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 we want to believe fully and completely, Lord, and, and be your follower. Receive these gifts for what they are. In your name, amen.